Hands of My Podcast is a proud member of DarkCast Network, presenting the brightest of indie podcasts. This episode, we'll be using adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics including violence, abuse, and murder. This episode may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. Hola, my beautiful humans. This is Jasmine Castillo. And this is MW. And I bring stories and cases from the people of color community, bringing awareness of murdered and missing indigenous women, girls to spirit, the LGBTQ community, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, black indigenous people of color. These are their stories. So, welcome to Hands Off, my podcast. A story that has twists and turns and a shocking ending. And from the hearts of Dina and Maria, they knew it was time for his story to be heard. I was able to speak with Dina in this interview, as well as share the information that Maria Lopez had provided to me. This is the story of Jorge Andres Luna. Jorge Andres Luna was born on June 9, 1981, in Harbor City, California. Maria Lopez, Jorge's mother, provided me with so many details of his life, like he weighed 7 pounds 11 ounces pretty nice size for her only boy, her third child, for she had two daughters born prior. Maria knew he was unique in so many ways. He grew up rough and tough, but always was a mama's boy. Maria and her children lived in Mexico when Jorge was three years old, and they always lived around his cousins and other children his age. Everybody that knew him would call him Coco Head as his nickname, and it stuck, particularly on a day when he was chasing the kids around the neighborhood. He fell and hit his head on a car door. He was rushed to his mother's home. Maria almost passed out from the amount of blood pouring from his head. During this whole time, Jorge was laughing. He thought it was funny and seemed to have not a typical pain tolerance like other kids. During his time as a child, Jorge had his tios, tias, abuela, and his father in his life. Even though Maria moved often, Jorge always had his extended family surrounding him in care. Maria made the decision of moving to Arizona and remarry. She wanted stability for her and her children. Jorge went to a handful of schools, and she recalls that this was the time Jorge was diagnosed with autism, even though in this time autism wasn't even considered on the spectrum. Jorge was bullied constantly in school because of his looks and behavior, finding every way to embarrass him because he couldn't read. He was even jumped because he wouldn't join their gang or have any type of affiliation with the gangs in the area. He then was transferred to Santa Maria and was jumped again to the point police were called and arrested him. He was labeled as a cholo and a bad influence by the law enforcement. Maria 
had no bail money, and unfortunately, his father was no longer in the picture to be there for him. Maria decided that getting him into football would be the way to release his frustration with bullying. From the photos that Maria provided to me, you can see the biggest smile on Jorge's face. He absolutely loved football. Maria finally received a break and was referred to a private school called Woodridge. The state was willing to pay a portion of the yearly tuition for Jorge. Jorge was overjoyed and fit right in and planned to graduate in June of 1998. Sadly, his life was cut short on February 18, 1998. Maria said, this is the night they took her son's life. Here's how our conversation started. It's been an honor to finally talk with you because Jorge's case is twist and turns, and I am so angry of how it's been dealt with from the beginning. And like I said, I've been trying to avoid this. Um, I know I shouldn't, but it's just it's just hard, you know. Yeah, it's it's something that needs to be talked about because one of the things I believe is, you know, coming from a people of color community, it's um something that our community has found a way to almost be like silenced. Our stories are silenced and we need to speak out for the voices of our family members. Um, it is so hard because it's a burden, but it's also like you're carrying it on your own or you're carrying and it's like the voice that you want the other people to say they're not here to fight for themselves. Yeah. So we have to carry on that that burden and that you never think that you have enough strength to do it, but here we are today. This is the step forward in bringing justice and bringing some type of process of healing and enclosure. Can you describe Jorge? Because um, I think he, um, you kind of mentioned it before, but I would love the listeners to see and hear from you. Um, can you describe Jorge and what are the things he most valued in life? Oh my God. <laughs> he was just amazing. I mean, I know once people die, everybody says all oh, they all these good things about him and and it's it's hard to say anything bad about him because he was just he was just joy. Like he had this smile that just like went from ear to ear. I mean, he was just so gorgeous, so handsome. And he's got, he had these long, long eyelashes. And my brother was never like, he was never angry. He was never mad. Like he just had this, this patience to him. And um, I mean, regardless of the things that he used to do and get in trouble and all that, it's like, you couldn't stay mad at him. You could never stay mad at him because he just had this energy that his smile just made you forget whatever he just did to you, you know? And as siblings growing up, um, obviously, you know, we had our ups and downs. We would fight, we would make up and all that stuff. And I, I felt especially close to him because I was the oldest of my mom's kids. And 
I, I felt like this connection to him, like he was my own son and I always protected him no matter what, like that was just my thing. And he would always tell me like, you don't have to protect me. Like I'm protecting you. I'm the only boy. I'm the man of the house. He would always say that. You have to listen to me. I'm the man of the house. As time went by, Maria fell into hard times. Jorge's father didn't provide child support. She wasn't eligible for state assistance because of her jobs. If you know the struggle of having a job but doesn't pay the bills, yet your income doesn't make you eligible for food stamps or state insurance, I've been there. I was a teen mom in the same situation. That shit is so frustrating. Falling behind on rent, then the electric bill, no food in the pantry. Maria had to sit Jorge down and tell him the thing that was the hardest thing to tell a child. She remembers saying, you are the man of the house. We are lacking in food and our electricity is about to be turned off. After that conversation, Jorge was nowhere in sight for almost a day. Maria was in a frantic panic of him being gone for so long. As Maria was in her worries, Jorge walked into the house that evening and hands his mother a plastic bag of change adding up to about $25. Maria, who I knew was absolutely relieved to see her son, asked him, Where were you? How did you get this money? I can just see Jorge stand there with pride, taking on his man-of-the-house badge, and tells her that he went to the corner of Willington and pumped people's gas for tips. Maria said this heartbreaking moment made her break into tears. Like he was always joking, he was always laughing, like he always had something sarcastic to say, that's for sure. Um, but he was just like this ball of energy, like nobody could ever be mad at him because he was just such a like a happy person. And the thing that meant the most to my brother up until he died was his family. Like he loved us, he loved my mom and dad unconditionally. Um, like I mentioned before, like we came from a broken family, and even then. He never put blame on any of them, and he never judged them. He never did any of that. Sadly, during Maria's time being married to Jorge's father, who battled with alcohol and became extremely violent towards Maria, he even threatened her life and almost killed her. Yet with all this turmoil, Maria strongly stated that their father always loved his children. During the rocky divorce, Maria moved the children to Ajo, Arizona. Even though she feared for her own life, she didn't want her children to think ill feelings of their father. As the children got older, Maria began to open up more on the reasons why she had left their father. One of these conversations were right before Jorge died. He, it was just like a contagious feeling when he walked in the room. No matter what feeling you were feeling that day, it just all went out the window when he walked in the room and all the attention was on him because of his smile and his charisma and just everything about him. Mm -hmm. You know, it, he was just, he was just amazing. He was very protective of us. Um, so it's myself, my sister, Lisa, and then him, he was the baby. But he, like I said, he always acted like he was the big brother. And um, he he was very loving. He he didn't care about showing affection. It didn't bother him. Like he was very affectionate, you know. And 
And my mom used to do this thing when he was little, she would scratch his head like this and he'd call it piojitos. And he, he <laughs> as big as he was, he's like, mom, can you do piojitos? And he, he, my mom would sit there and he would lay on her lap, like his head on her lap and she would scratch his head and you could just see he's like falling asleep. And he did not care. His friends would be outside waiting for him and he did not care. He was not embarrassed. <laughs> my son is just like that as well like, <laughs> yeah he and he's gonna be 27 and it's like he was holy he holds my hand and like when we're down the street you're like well he doesn't care i'm his mom you know he, he hugs me in the morning all the time sometimes it, I, it annoys the crap out of me but i'm like i'm gonna miss this when he leaves you know i'm gonna miss this when he's gone Fast forward a few years later, Maria moved to Phoenix. She recalls how Jorge would be the jokester and the teaser to his own sisters. Dina and Lisa were too focused on Barbies and the boys in the neighborhood. Maria had many opportunities to spend some quality time with Jorge, exploring outdoors and camping. She even recounts the many times of hiking to the quartz quarry, mining for quartz and placing them into a jug of water to watch them sparkle in all its beauty of nature. Maria loved her family and strived for the best, even carrying three jobs at once. She was so excited to have her brand new car. One of the first things that she did was have a family trip to Flagstaff. When they saw the snow in Flagstaff, it was such a beautiful sight to see. Maria, Jorge, Dina, Lisa, building snowmen, even Jorge ice skating on the pond. To see her children in this moment is probably one of the best memories to embrace. With all the things that go on in this world, this world is so cruel. And to have such beautiful people in this, in this world to give you an inkling of joy and happiness and a fulfillment of being in their presence it just sounds like that's something Jorge gave. It's just a beautiful thing to have. It's so precious because you don't get that. You don't have this in this world. And I'm so, I'm so glad that um, you're able to share these stories with me and to the listeners. He, I mean, he had the longest eyelashes. And I remember one Halloween, I was like, hey, can I do your makeup? He's like, no. And him and his friend Rudy didn't have a costume. And I was like, why don't I just do makeup on you guys? You guys put on one of mom's dresses and there you go. And they literally let me. And now, mind you, my brother was bald. He had tattoos. He had a tattoo on his ear and, you know, and he let me put makeup on. I remember doing his lashes and thinking like, oh, my God, like women will kill for these lashes. And him and Rudy, there they go with these tight dresses on and their lashes <laughs> going trick or treating in the neighborhood. He did not care. That's how you're supposed to live. Like. Ah, oh, I love hearing these stories. It just makes me feel like it means more when you have something, just an inkling of that in our lives. It's just so hard. Um, what y'all going through? I'm trying not to cry. <laughs> See, It'll I feel like we're going to make here six months. <laughs> yes. That on top of that. 25. And and like you said, it does. It feels like just yesterday. Like I remember the feeling. I remember, I remember everything. Like it doesn't go away. It doesn't need to wait any longer. It should not be hidden from the world. He sounds. He just has that beautiful, bright soul 
and you no longer need to hide it under a bush. His his story of his life needs to be out there. And I'm so glad that we're able to talk about him. I think there was a part where I asked about a significant other. He he didn't have an actual girlfriend at the time. Um, and he he was like, he loved the ladies. He loved the ladies. And to him, like he knew he was good looking. You know, friends my age would be like, oh, your brother's so cute. Your brother, I'm like, stay away from my brother. He's little. He's only 16. He's only 50. And he didn't care. He's like, it's okay. He's like, I like older women. I like older women. I'm like, what is up? You know what I mean? There was this one girl in particular. He he liked her very much. I think she's the only girl that I ever heard him really like gush about it. You know, like he would get a little embarrassed and we would bring it up or whatever. But he he truly liked her a lot. And I know that they like hooked up a couple times or something like that. I don't remember the specifics, but when my brother did pass away, it was believed that she was pregnant at the time. Whether it was his or not, it's always been denied. But she did have a boy. And my mom and I try to go back and kind of do the math around that time that they were together. And we just kind of like end up hurting ourselves in the end because we're like, you know, if it is, she's not letting us know. There's no way for us to find out. So we just leave it in the hands of God. And, and you know, if it is his, then, you know, one day we'll find out. And if it's not, well, then, you know, we have to get over it, basically. But my mom and I and my sister, were still hopeful that one day somebody will come knocking at our door and it'll be his son. Mm-hmm. Oh my <laughs> it would be something that he left, you know. And I know it's it's like so screwed up because you're thinking like, this is a 16-year-old and you're hoping that he had a child. No, you don't want any 16-year-old to ever have a child. But when they've been taken from you like that, he could have been 12 and that would have asked for a child from him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's like you have nothing left. And it's oh just it's just hard. It's just hard. But that was his thing back then was like he didn't have an actual relationship. But we know that, you know, he truly cared about her and and we're just hopeful that you know if it is then then you know we'll get that knock on the door one day um but to say that he actually had a girlfriend he did not have a girlfriend at the time it'll be quite interesting how everything comes to light yeah eventually and if it is oh my gosh um yeah during a viewing of jorge maria said this is where the mystery began A large group of family and friends came together to pay respect. Maria was overwhelmed by how Jorge impacted so many people for so many different reasons. What even became more of a mystery was a large amount of Phoenix police presence. At his viewing, helicopters hovered over the area because they were, quote-unquote, concerned of retaliation from the community. The possible reason for the presence of the police was Prior to Jorge's death, because of the group of friends he was hanging with, he was in the car that was involved in a drive-by and was being sentenced to five to seven years at most in prison. But even their presence at Jorge's viewing made Maria furious. No respect for Jorge or her family that day of grieving. And let me tell you, at 16, he had so many girls at his service we were like what the heck would he have time 
How did he know all these girls? And obviously he didn't like, you know, he didn't hook up with all of them. But like I said, girls loved him. Women loved him. Like he just, like I say, he had this charisma. He just had this thing and, and that smile in those eyes. And he was tall and thin and yeah. He was definitely a ladies' man for sure. Yeah, they say tall, dark, and handsome, you know? Yeah, yeah dark hair, dark eyes. And yeah, that was him. For sure. Wow, thank you for sharing that. And I, I wanted to, I, I was going to ask you, um, but I think it's pretty obvious if someone is actually listening to our conversation on the podcast. I wanted to ask, how are you holding up? Um, it's, extremely obvious that you are still going through the process like you like I mentioned before you still feel like it was just happened yesterday it's hurt it hurts it hurts it deeply away. It doesn't go away at all it doesn't matter how long it's been like on my phone I literally have a picture of him on my screensaver there has not been a day that goes by that I don't think about him. And I know people say, how, how do you keep somebody in mind every day? Like that's impossible. It's very possible. It's very possible. And, and sometimes like, I know that I personally have not mourned for him because in the back of my head, I'm always thinking, I'm going to see him. He just, he's not around, you know, he was going through some legal issues. And then back of my head, I just think, nope, he's in jail. I'm going to see him again one day. And that's how I've dealt with it for so long. And that's why I kind of like avoided, you know, setting this up and doing that because I just, I wake up every morning and I tell myself, I got to put that fake smile on my face and go on about my day, regardless of what I'm going through. And that's my everyday life. And this is very much one of those things that I have to fake my smile. And every now and then, I break down and I go through his letters and I go through his pictures and I go through his album. I just actually looked at the album the other day and, and I break down and I know that I need that every once in a while, but honestly, in the back of my head, I don't believe that he's gone. Like it's hard for me to believe that because I don't want to believe that, you know, especially him being so young, he was only 16. Like his life didn't even start yet. You know, when, when my mom and I got his um, his belongings from the detective, or actually we picked him up at the morgue, um, he had his his ID, he had his school ID, he had his birth certificate and his social security card with him. And the reason he had all that with him and carried it because he was looking for a job and he thought he needed all those proofs of of whatever he needed to get a job. And we were, I remember thinking like, why were you carrying all this stuff with you? You know what I mean? But he was just a baby still. He was a baby. He didn't have his first job yet. So for me, I, it's hard for me to accept that he's gone. And I know it's affected my mental health because I know that I need to come to terms with the fact that he is gone. And maybe the one day, once we get justice, I will. You know, until then, I just, I hold on and I don't want to let go. Yeah, there's so many levels of the grieving process and the acceptance process and the closure and the, and it's not said in an actual manual. It's based on you, the, the closeness that you've had with him. You know, no one can tell you, well, why are you still on it? Why are you still thinking this way? No one should rush anyone in their grieving process. No one should say, well, get over it. I think that's the most cruelest, yeah, cruelest thing. Like you have no 
decency, no respect for this family. I mean, and I will put them in their place. And that's just to me, everyone has their own level at their own pace of what is considered right for them at that moment. And I believe that taking this step, even though it's extremely, extremely emotional and hard to do, I think this is the step that you were needing, you and your mom needed to finally have some type of, at least an inkling of being close enough to say in in front of us, there is some type of justice, there is something being done um, that we can move on to the next process and move on to the next process. And I'm, I hope that while I'm still here on earth, that I'm, I will be able to see this as well, because that's my goal. Um, and I, I thank you so much for opening your heart to me about this. A lot of the stuff that your mother Marie had provided to me, it's so gut-wrenching. And the, the documents that she had sent over to me, it's, I just feel like I want to scream because it's so frustrating how from the moment it's like they dropped the ball and you could see so much disarray and disorganization how they almost like they wanted to automatically close the case and just put a label on it and put a statistic that oh this is person you know is from the hispanic or latina community wrong you know wrong place wrong time oh well that's to me that's bs i i would never forget that night that everything happened the detective was questioning everybody and i remember being in the car he turned the heater on because it was raining that night and he was asking me questions and i answered all the questions and he turned to me and said he's like well that's one less mexican off the street and i remember i was just so upset because i'm like my brother was just more than just one mexican you know my brother was a whole community you know, he's a whole race and that's what you say. Like, I just like, I just remember thinking like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, did he just really say that? It's appalling. You know, and, and I've always kept that in my head. And I, I remember the feeling, I remember feeling nauseous because how can you say something like that? Right, exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. I just remember that feeling of just anger and just kind of like, oh nauseous at the same time like am i just gonna throw up in this man's car because of what he just said you know and i still have to keep my composure because i don't want to go to jail mm. you know and and it just i i'll never forget that i will never forget that and that plays in my head so much mm. just to have that as one of the last words that comes out of someone's mouth that you would believe that would be yeah. a person who will be in his position to serve and yeah. protect the community to give you these words of these are not words of encouragement that was literally a spit yeah. in my face yeah. family just lost somebody like and i'm i'm extremely appalled of how they treat the hispanic community i've seen it all my life and and it's just i cannot believe that we're in 2023 and we still see it today like yeah it hasn't gone away. No, yeah. it's it's appalling. It's appalling. The only difference now is that we have phones, we have recording, everybody's always recording. Like I wished we had this technology back then. 
you know, I wish we had that for these circumstances, you know? It's horrifying how families have to go through this. Like you grieve, you can never, you can never get to that next level because you're still in the process of, well, but you know, how you were treated in the beginning, you can't get over that, that hurdle of anguish and just disrespect and how you have not been treated you know it's just oh it's beyond for this part of our clip um do you have any funny stories about times you've spent together and you you mentioned it but i i would love to for the other listeners to hear about this story about you and jorge and and other incidents um Funny stories. I mean, the main one that like stands out is we used to go to Mexico to Ensenada for uh, for a summer, and uh, he used to because he spoke English and Spanish. He would go and help get the tourists, you know, to do boat rides and stuff like that on the pier. And my mom knew everybody there at the pier and all that stuff. And she used to work at one of the taco stands there. So we would go every morning with her there and spend the whole day there and either help out or do whatever. My brother had this thing to go to the pier and help out with the tourists. Well, there was a seal that always hung out at the tourist area right there on the pier. And he was kind of aggressive. And I remember my brother, he fell in the water trying to get a tourist on one of the boats and there was like the rope that's holding the boat and the onto the pier and my brother was holding onto that to dear life and he was like screaming help me help me and then he's like auxilio ayudame and it was just so funny because i turned around and i'm like laughing he's like help me help me so one of the guys grabbed him by his arm and pulled him out of the water and i'm looking he looked at me and i'm laughing at him and he's like that's me you didn't even help me you didn't even help me i'm like when did you learn that word in Spanish? She's like, I don't know. I didn't even know I knew that word in Spanish. <laughs> it was just the most funniest thing ever because who knew? I mean, that's kind of a hard word, you know? And yeah, he was just screaming. And I'm like, why were you screaming like that? You sound like a little bee. And he's like, gosh, he's like, you try to get bit by a seal. You try to get bit by a seal. And the seal was nowhere near there at the time. But he was just like terrified of that. And I remember we gave him shit for so long after that. That's like <laughs> one of the main funny stories about him. But he was a character. He was always doing stuff to make us laugh. He was always, you know, he would always tell us this stupid joke is, what do you call cheese that's not yours? We're like, we know what hit nacho cheese. He's like, no, nacho cheese. <laughs> this big old <laughs> smile. But he would always, you know, stupid jokes or pranks. Like he was always doing something. That kid was always into something, doing something, saying something. But those are like some of the main funny stories and memories that I've held on to and I've cherished those like the most. Um, but we used to go every Sunday with my dad. He would take us, you know, on a cruise around the coast. You know, we used to live in California. We lived in Wilmington and Carson and we lived right on PCH, which is Pacific Coast Highway. And every Sunday never failed. We would always, you know, take a cruise and we'd end up at one of the beaches and we just hang out on the beach and I would always bury him. We would always bury him. And we always try to go deeper and deeper. Every time we try to go deeper and deeper. And I remember one time, I guess we did it a little too deep because when we put the sand on him, 
and like I would pack it in. He's like, okay, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And we were trying to like dig him out and it was taking forever. And he kept saying, when I get out of this, I'm going to kick your butt. And I'm like, well, then I'm just going to leave you. And I would just walk away. Dina, get over here, dad. Like he would start screaming. But yeah, like we, we had fun. Obviously we would fight all the time. We would always, you know, my sister Lisa always had money. For some reason, she always held on to her allowance. So every time the ice cream man would come, we'd be like, hey, can you buy us something? She'd be like, no, no. We're like, we're going to jump you out of the family then if you don't get us anything. Or we would lock her out of the house. Or we would do so many mean things to her all the time in order for her to give us stuff or to buy us something. So I'm sure if you ever spoke to her, she would probably tell you one of those stories. (laughs) You guys had a blast. Yeah, yeah. As much as we fought, we had as much fun with it. You know, it was never the thing where we held the grudge against each each other at all. We never went to bed mad. Um, We had to share a room at one point. Um, And maybe that's probably why we were so close as kids. As adults, after my brother passed away, it all changed. But as kids, we were were really, really close. Yeah. And that's how the childhood should be. Mm -hmm. Like... There's so many rivalries and so many things that siblings go through and it just like puts a wedge in between their relationship. But it is so awesome that you were able to have that bonding and not that many people have the opportunity of doing that. And I'm so glad that you were able to have that because that's precious. Yeah, that is so precious. Were there any major changes to Jorge's life that affected um, them in a big way? I mean, like I mentioned earlier, we came from a broken home. I mean, our parents divorced. I was six years old, so he was younger. He was like three, four years old. I don't think he really had memories of my mom and dad together um, because he was so young when they did divorce. So I remember like being younger and we were living with my mom at the time and he would always say like, oh, I wish my mom and dad were together so they could both, you know, be here. And we were always back and forth. And, you know, we were with one parent or we were with the other parent. And then, you know, for me, from the fourth grade up, I believe my brother was just about to start kinder in first grade when my mom, you know, let us live with my dad. So from there, my brother was attached to my dad because my dad raised us for a few years. And we would go and visit my mom in the summer or vacations and things like that. But I think also like he had this bond with my dad. And when my mom, you know, moved back, he started having that bond with my mom. And I think that affected him in the sense of like being back and forth. There was like two different lives, you know, my mom, you know, we lived here in Arizona and then we went back to California and then we moved back to Arizona and then we stayed in California. And then I want to say maybe he was 13, 12, maybe 12, 13, maybe even younger. I don't even have that memory of exactly what age he was, but I know that I was 16 going on 17 when we moved here to Arizona and it was different for him coming here to Arizona, you know, cause then he was around my mom's side of the family here. Although he missed his side over there, you know, so I know a lot of it affected him because I know it affected me, but he never really spoke about it, to be honest with you. Like, yeah, he would miss my dad and he'd miss the family and stuff like that. But he never talked about him being upset, him being hurt, him being mad. He never talked about stuff like that. 
So to for me to say that, yes, it impacted him in a big way, I would be lying because he never said that. He was just one of those go with the flow, you know, and this is my life now. And, you know, I get to go spend the summer with my dad. And but this is what I do here. So in that sense, I, I, I honestly I, I don't know as far as like how much it impacted him. Maria and her son had such a strong bond and such a deep understanding that Jorge would always go to her and talk about anything and everything, asking questions about life. Nothing was a secret. Her door was always open. In listening and acceptance, Jorge's thoughts were always welcomed. He had struggled with so many things at the point of his life, and Maria saw the signs and wanted him to get the help that he needed. Now, mental health wasn't accessible as much as it was for the minority population, and it wasn't even talked about. You know, and like I said, he never put blame on either parent. You know, I mean, I did because I was older, so I seen more and I understood more. And I think because he was so young, he never put fault on anybody. He didn't, he never say, oh, it's mom's fault or it's dad's fault or anything like that. It just, it is what it is. And that was just who he was. Yeah. And I, I think that that has a lot to do with, um, yeah, your age range. Mm-hmm. Like our point of view with our parents is completely almost like night and day. I've learned through the years that everybody has their point of view of how they grew up. Mm-hmm. So like, I always talk about our childhood, how amazing it was and how great it was. And even though my mom was out of the picture for a while, we enjoyed being with my dad and my sister helping them raise us. Like, I just have nothing but good memories. But at the same time, we had bad memories. My dad was an alcoholic. You know, we lived with that. My sister, my older sister for my dad's first marriage, she helped my dad raise us. We lived in a small home. We were poor. We literally, we would get our clothes from the Swami, if not from the Goodwill, you know? And, and I think through the eyes of my brother, because he was just so nonchalant and just, it is what it is. And like I said, he rarely ever, ever got mad. I think the only time I I could say my brother got mad was when I took his can of starch away because he couldn't iron his clothes. You know what I mean? (laughs) So like for him, I just think, you know, he just, he did not care. Like, to him it was like, this is life and that's it. You know, you take what you take and that's just how it is. He did not complain about it, but I have learned that everybody has their own perspective on their upbringing or what they're going through. Everybody has their own lenses, their own eyes that they see things differently than you. Oh, for sure. There was, there's one question I wanted to ask, but, um, I know this is going to be a tearjerker for me, especially where we both, if we can virtual hug each other right now, if you knew if Jorge could drop by and visit tomorrow, that's the one I I didn't want to say, (laughs) we're all going to cry right now. What would be your ideal day spent together? What would that look like? I'd probably be dead. (laughs) I'd probably die of a heart attack. Um, I would definitely have his, his gun us out the burrito ready. <laughs> um, I don't know why he would do this. And we used to say, oh, it's because he has ADD. That was just, you know, us being cruel or whatever, but he loved cereal. 
it didn't matter what kind of cereal, as long as it was a sugary cereal, he had to pour himself the biggest bowl we had in the house. I don't know why, but I just remember walking in and he's sitting in the living room. He's got this bowl, like holding it with his arm, like he's hugging it. And he's just like slurping and slurping. I'm like, I look, he's looking up and milk's dripping on the side of his mouth. And I'm like, God, you're so ADD. <laughs> But he loved his cereal and kind of salad burrito. Like he loved my mom's cooking regardless. He was never like, oh, I don't want to eat that. Or I don't want to eat that. I think he was picky to a certain extent. But I, I think my mom just cooked around the pickiness because I can't say that he would tell my mom, oh, I don't want that because it has this in it or that in it. And maybe my mom can, you know, shed more light on that part. But as long as he had that Ganasada burrito, he was happy. Oh, my God. He was like the happiest person in the world. Um, so I would honestly say that I would, I would have that ready for him. I would have his bowls of cereal ready for him. Um, obviously, just like hug and kiss him like endlessly. I'd probably like never want to let go. I would want to relive the moments of going to church on Sundays as kids with my dad and my dad giving us allowance. And then we're all packing in the van. Like we all packed up in this van that my dad had and they had like five seats in there, like five rows of seats or so. It's like a huge van. And uh, we have like a huge family. So we have like tons of nephews and nieces and we, they're all, we, they're all like the same age as well. So, they would always spend the night. So like on Sundays, it was never short of at least my dad carrying five to six kids with him every Sunday. And we would start our morning with going to church. And then after church, we would go for the cruise. We'd stop at Tommy's Burgers, um, which is a spot in California. And they're like all over, all over, you know, Southern California. They're called Tommy's Burgers and or Tom's number one. And we would stop there get burgers and fries and they had the best fries my brother my brother would be so bad because he would want our leftover fries that we didn't eat because they would put the seasoning on it and he would just lick the seasoning off and just throw <laughs> the fries back and i remember my dad went to go grab it. he's like why are these fries all wet he like licked all the seasoning off of it <laughs> um but we would definitely go down pch memory lane we would end up either in santa monica or malibu you know or venice and just play in the sand you know I, you know we never built sand castles he tried but the sand was too soft and he hated it but i would say probably you know bury him again oh my god that's ugly to say right bury him <laughs> again if you were no i wouldn't bury him again but yeah i would say you know try to relive those memories and 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 just be together. And, and hopefully if he were to stop by, my dad would stop by with him because my dad passed away as well in, in 2015. And I know that, that my losing my brother killed my dad and he never said he wanted to die, but I know that my dad was ready to die because he wanted to be with my brother. Mm -hmm. He missed my brother tremendously, tremendously. And I would say, you know, if my brother did stop by, we would do all that. You know, I, I'd make sure that all of his nephews and nieces were with him as well and that he got to meet his great nephews and nieces and and got to see the whole family. 
And I feel like for me, with my kids and my sister's kids, we've always talked about my brother. Like my kids who never met him still call him Theo Jorge, you know, and the memories that I talk about, they feel like they knew him. You know, when we go to the cemetery and, you know, they see me cry, they, they cry too, because they feel that they knew him. They feel like as much as we talk about him, as much as we keep his memory alive and the pictures we have everywhere. And, and my son, resembles him a lot and they they feel that connection my son was i think three years old when he passed away and my son was very close to him mm -hmm. so i know that my brother would be happy to see him he'd be happy to see him and he'd probably be like do you still remember i taught you to flip people off <laughs> <laughs> i remember walking in on my brother and i'm like what are you doing he's like oh i'm just showing him to flip people off i'm like why he's like because why not <laughs> so yeah i think you know i definitely make sure that you know we were all together again what a great deal like yeah. you gotta teach right? him teach him all the curse words 101 like and to call people putos yes right yes. you've been there you yeah. know the whole thing right oh yeah he was the best uncle for that and honestly he was really a good uncle. He was very playful with the two nephews at the time. It was just my son, Gabriel, and my nephew, Anthony, my sister's son, not including the older nephews and nieces from my dad's first marriage, but just for my sister and I, the two nephews that he was really close to that he lived with when he lived with us were them two. And he was very attentive to them. He loved them to pieces. Before my brother passed away, I had gotten in a really bad car accident. And um, I was in a wheelchair for a while. And then one time I remember like looking for my wheelchair because I had to go to the bathroom and my cousin Sergio was with him at the time. And they came back, they went to the store on my wheelchair, which oh the store God. was like down the street. And it was funny because when they came back and my cousin Sergio was trying to tell us the story and he was just laughing so hard. And I'm like, what happened? So the story was that they were, you know, going to the store and he was pushing my brother in the wheelchair. And when they were going off of the sidewalk into the street, into the crosswalk, it got stuck like on the, on the, on the street part, like on the cement. So my brother like kind of like flew off of it and he stood up and he's like, I'm healed. I'm healed. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. <laughs> I'm like, are you serious? Like, what the hell? That's the kind of stuff my brother would do. <laughs> I'm like, dude, really? Like, you really needed to take my wheelchair to the damn store? Like, you're that lazy on oh. the wheelchair? And he taught himself to do tricks on that wheelchair. And he's like, look, look what I could do. He was always doing stuff like that. <laughs> like, pop a wheelie. Look at me. Yes. <laughs> he would pop a wheelie. He would always fall. Like, oh, my God. He, he, was, <laughs> he was bad when it came to stuff like that. That is so wrong. I'm healed. Yeah. Like, yeah. like which church did you He was laughing so hard he couldn't even tell the story that my brother was the one that kind of like interjecting here and there trying to tell the story too because it was just freaking comedy with him all the time. Oh my God. I'm crying with like, yeah. this is hilarious. So maybe I get in a wheelchair to see, hey, do you still know the trick? <laughs> Want to go for a spin? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, no. If if I if I could see my brother again, like you know, uh, it's kind of funny because I dream about him a lot, and and I I truly believe that 
when you dream of loved ones that pass is because they're visiting you. And, mm-hmm. and I, I believe that because when I wake up, I have this sense of like, I was just with them. Like I have this calm, this feeling that I really was with them. And a few times I've been, you know, woken up abruptly from one of those dreams. And I am so mad. I'm like, I was dreaming about my brother. Like, why would you wake me up? Well, we don't know what you're dreaming. I don't care. If I'm sleeping, don't bother me. And I have like these vivid dreams that feel so real to me. And, and I honestly feel that when, when that happens, they're visiting me and, and I dream about him a lot. I, I, I honestly, I dream about him a lot and, and I love those feelings. I love those feelings. So if seeing him again is anything close to that, I, I will take it. I will take it a hundred times full. Like I will take it. You have such a close bond with, with Jorge that he's I just know when someone comes to you from the other side in some form of connection it's bittersweet but it's also beautiful because they're telling you many things they're okay they're safe they love you I'm here for you and I'm never leaving physically but spiritually I will always be there for you but it's like you want every moment like sunshine, oh, yeah. like you, yeah. you, you gotta absorb as much of that presence while they're there, because yeah. you never know when the next time they'll appear. Or right. and so, yeah, it's it's so. Oh my gosh, there, there's been so many times where I'm just like feeling really sad and down, and and it could be just like drama with my kids or whatever, and and I start thinking about my brother, and it's usually because like a memory, a memory of something, you know, triggers it. And his song would come on. Like he loved that song, Suavecito. He loved that song. You know, that's what we grew up on. So that was something that he listened to a lot. He listened to some rap and all that. And it never fails. Like I'll turn on the radio and that song will come on. And so interesting. I know that, I mean, somebody listening to this would probably be like, yeah, right. That's bullshit, whatever. I kid you not, every time I have a dream about him, when I turn on my vehicle, the first song that comes on the radio is Suavecito. No Mm. lie. No lie. And for me, that's confirmation. You know, that's Mm -hmm. confirmation because it's like, I feel it's so real. It's so real to me. And I feel like that's all I need. I know you're with me. I know he's sitting right here with me right now telling me it's going to be okay. That one day we are going to get justice. And, And I truly believe that. And I know it's kind of shitty for me to say that. Like, I kind of put this in the back of my head because it's like, once I get, once we get, I should say, justice, like, am I going to forget about him? Am I going to stop crying? Like, I'm scared of that. I'm scared of what, what it's going to feel like once we get closure. I'm scared. I'm, I'm extremely scared. And of course I want closure. Of course I want justice for my brother. He he didn't have to die the way he did. He didn't have to die so young. Things didn't have to happen the way they did, you know? And and I just feel like it's like you said, bittersweet, you know? It's mm-hmm. bittersweet. Yeah. And I think that the you'll still have the same emotions, but it instead of the tears of sorrow and grief, it'll be tears of joy and relief and thankfulness that there is justice there is some type of closeness to to the end of of uh you know his case being resolved in 
the proper ethical way. And I, I really appreciate you opening it up to me uh, on this these questions about Jorge and his life. I would love to um, also talk about what had happened. I mean, I'm blown out of the water and how I just want to say, what the fuck just happened here? Why is this family going through this whole road of hardship to find out that they made these accusations from the get-go? And now you had to go through another process of of the open wound again on this this whole case about what had happened. And I don't know if you wanted to share that because I think a lot of the people who might be listening are not familiar with Jorge's story and what had happened that night or what happened um, coming up to that night of um, his passing and how it happened. Maria had been working night shift in Scottsdale for about 14 years at a restaurant. She just received a small promotion, and she recalls receiving multiple calls from the Phoenix police that Jorge was picked up with some other kids past the 9 p.m. curfew. Unfortunately, Jorge started hanging with a group of other kids. Well, the way that Maria stated, they were adults. These adults brought Jorge under their wing in their group. Jorge looked up to them and Maria didn't see anything odd about it. Yet it became a problem when Maria would get at least three calls a week, hanging out past curfew, and had to leave her job to pick him up. This area was constantly frowned upon by the police and, and was constantly targeting blacks and Hispanics in the neighborhood. Jorge was considered a cholo or a gangbanger in their eyes. Maria knew these labels would go even deeper on the night of Jorge's death. On Tuesday evening of February 17, 1998, Maria came home bringing tacos for Jorge for dinner. Jorge was heading out to spend time with his nephew, Sergio, who lived a block or so away. Dina was with her then-boyfriend, now-husband. They were heading out to a friend's house to watch movies. Jorge begged Dina if he could join. Dina remembers vividly how this conversation would be the pivoting moment of that evening of what to come. So Jorge left to Sergio only to return home to tell his mom, I love you, and tell dad I said sorry. It was almost like he had a premonition. Jorge then told his mom that he was going across the street to hang out with his friends. The same group that was hanging across the street that fateful night. This is where this group of guys would always have their parties at. A fight ensued in the back of the house, which was later identified as an abandoned. Jorge was used to being bullied and harassed and chose not to back down from the fight with the other guy. Maria told Jorge, never let anyone push you around. If they threw the first punch, you hold your own. And this is what Jorge did. It came to be in Jorge's favor because he was able to end the fight in hoping the guy took his defeat home with his tail tucked between his legs. Unfortunately, no. This guy was a sore loser and didn't want to be seen in front of his friends being beaten by a kid. Jorge was then in the front of the abandoned home carport when Maria, who was just across the street, heard a shot ring out. At first, she said it sounded like, quote-unquote, 
somebody slamming down a trash can closed. The shot she heard was the single shot to Jorge's chest, straight through his heart. Shortly after, it began to rain, and there was a knock at Maria's side door. Someone yelled out behind the door. Carson was shot. Maria doesn't even remember running across the street. All she remembers is that she'd lost it. She tried reviving him, but yet unsuccessful. Maria closed Jorge's eyes and held on to him tight. She couldn't recall how long she held him. All she knows is that once the police arrived, they had to pry her away from her son. So that night was uh, February 17th. And at the time I was, um, I was with my boyfriend at the time, because we weren't married yet, and my best friend. She had picked me up to go spend the night at her house. And this is after I had a car accident. So at this time, I was actually walking with crutches. I was trying to, you know, learn from, like, get off of the wheelchair and, and depend more on crutches. So we ended up going to my friend's house to spend the night that night. And I remember my brother coming out to the car, to the truck, and he's putting his arms on the windowsill. And he's like, can I go with you guys? And I was like, no, because then you're going to be bored and you're going to want us to bring you back. And it's raining and it's cold. Just stay home. And he's like, come on, I won't, I won't. I'm like, no, Jorge, just stay home, you know? And which is one of my biggest regrets in life. Um, we ended up leaving that night and we had my son with us. And my mom can shed light as to, you know, how everything happened, you know, up until the time I got there. But, um, it's my understanding that he told my mom that he was going to go to my cousin Sergio's house, which lived two blocks away. And he went walking over there. And this was at night, I want to say, you know, after 10 o'clock, maybe. And from what my cousin Sergio told us that night is that he went over there. He wanted to hang out, but my cousin Sergio had his girlfriend over and um, he didn't want to go anywhere. So then my brother walked back home, but he walked home the opposite way, which was a long way. And I guess after my brother had already walked over there to my cousin Sergio's house, some of his so-called friends had come over to our house looking for him. And my brother-in-law, my sister's boyfriend, who lived with us as well, um, his name is Anthony, we call him Flacco. He told them, oh no, he took off to Sergio's house. And then after that, my understanding is, is that one of them, I don't know which one, um, came to the door and knocked on the door and told my brother-in-law, um, Carson got shot, which is what my brother's nickname, Jorge was his nickname, Carson. And he was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, he got shot. He's over there across the street, which is like an old abandoned house. And he was under the carport. And so then he grabbed my mom or whatever and they walked, they ran across the street and my mom was holding my brother and she's the one that closed his eyes. So it was my sister-in-law who called me, which was Flacco's sister, Valerie, called me at my friend Gina's house and said, you got to get home. You got to get home. Carson got shot. And it was so eerie because this happened around the whole thing when I got the phone call was like around one o'clock in the morning. And we were watching a movie in the living room 
and my son Gabriel was asleep on the couch. And before I got the phone call, my son had fallen off the couch while he was asleep. He was, he rolled over and fell off the couch and he got up and he says, I want my Theo Jorge. I want my Theo Jorge. And I was like, just go back to bed. You know, you'll see him tomorrow. And he fell back asleep. Minutes, I want to say just minutes after that happened, that's when we get the phone call. And my friend looked at me and I remember her looking at me like, who's going to be calling me this late at night? Like, that's weird. So she got up and answered the phone in the kitchen. And she's like, she had this look on her face and she's like, Dina, it's for you. And I grabbed the phone and I'm like, hello. And Valerie's just crying. She's like, you got to get home. You got to get home. Carson got shot. Carson got shot. And I was like, what? No, don't say that. Don't say that. And we just got in the car. My boyfriend at the time, he, um, well, Albert, he, uh, he grabbed my son, picked him up. We got in the truck. We were driving home and it was dead silent. And it felt like the longest ride home. And we weren't even that far, but it felt like the longest ride home. It was dead silent. And I remember Albert putting his hand on my shoulder. I was sitting in the front seat and he's like, he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. And I said, my brother's gone. I already feel it. My brother's gone. He's like, don't say that. Don't say that. So when we get there, there's already yellow tape everywhere. So we had to literally park like halfway down our street. And I'm trying to walk as fast as I could with these crutches and it's raining and it's cold and the, 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 I'm not even say detective, the police stopped me and they're like, you can't cross. I said, what do you mean? I can't cross. That's my brother. That's my brother. I kept like pointing with the crutches. Like, that's my brother. That's my brother. They're like, we can't let you cross. I say, yes, you can. And I remember like pushing. And I remember I almost fell over because I lost my balance. And I remember my legs just being so weak. And I just remember them like trying to hold me up and they're like, we can't let you pass. I say, yes, you can. That's my brother. That's my brother. And I could see from a distance, they just had my brother laying out there. Yeah, I just remember it was so cold and they just had a sheet over him. I was just so upset. I was like, it's cold, it's raining. Like, why do you have my brother there? Like, cover him up. That's all I could think about was like, cover him, he's cold. After the police pulled her away from Jorge's lifeless body, they took her back to her home. Maria went totally numb. She couldn't hear or feel anything or anyone around her. She couldn't get the image of her son from her mind. Maria watched through her window as her son's body left in the rain. Within 24 hours, Jorge's case was closed. Suicide, the Glendale Phoenix law enforcement chalked it up to be. And because of that, Life insurance wouldn't cover the cost of burial and the tombstone for Jorge because the death was ruled as a suicide. Maria didn't have two dimes to rub together. A sister-in-law told Maria she would pay for it, yet it took them five years with the help of Dina to repay her sister-in-law for its extreme generosity to a hard time of in their life. <laughs> They walked me into the house and I just see my mom and my mom was just like in a zone. Like I don't even think I seen her eyes blink. And I just remember just sitting on the couch, just crying and just crying. And the police are in and out and they're asking questions. And 
I remember seeing my cousin sitting on the counter and he's like, he was just there at the house. I should have hung out with him. And and then we started talking. I'm like, I should have just took him with us. I should have just took him with us. This would have never happened to him. I said, he just wanted to hang out with somebody. He didn't want to be home. And then that's when they started interviewing all of us. And I remember calling my sister in California and I said, I said, where's dad? And she's like, oh, he's asleep. I said, you got to wake him up. You guys got to get here. Oh, and I was killed. And I just remember her screaming. And then my dad was just screaming. And I had never, ever heard my dad scream or cry like that. It's like, it literally just happened because I could hear him. And I just remember dropping the phone. And I just remember like, wanting to throw up like it was like this feeling like I just wanted to throw up like it was just a nightmare like I just just wake up and just shake my head like this isn't real this isn't real like my brother's not gone he's not gone and I remember doing the the interview with the detective and I just remember I started getting angry and I was just so angry and I could look over there and I see my brother still laying there laying there And, like, it was raining off and on, off and on. And they try to ask us questions, like, was your brother depressed? And I'm like, no, like, no way. My brother was never depressed, you know? He was facing jail time. And he wasn't depressed about it. You know, believe it or not, he was not depressed about it. The only thing my brother cared about was that we put money on his books so that way he had food and he could buy himself commissary and he could get himself a TV. Like, that was his main thing. Like, as long as I have a TV, I'll be fine. He's like, I know I got to go to jail. I know I got to pay for what we did. He's like, I'm not going to, like, try to run from this. You know, like, he manned up to his stuff. And even though it wasn't him that did what they did, he was in the vehicle when they did it. And he knew that being in that vehicle, he was going to get into some trouble. He already knew that. And he would tell me all the time, like, I'm not scared to go to jail. He's like, I know what we did. He's like, and I know I could have got out the vehicle. I didn't have to be in there. He's like, but I make stupid choices. Now I got to make, you know, good with what I did. He's like, I have to do what I have to do. And the only thing he cared about was that we would visit him, that we would visit him and that we would put money on his books. And the detective tried to say, like, oh, your brother was depressed. He killed himself. I said, no, what the fuck? Like, my brother would never kill himself. Ever. Like, why would you even say that? Oh, it's because, you know, this is a story we got and all this stuff. I'm like, you're saying basically that he killed himself, but yet the weapon you guys found across the street in our yard? How was that possible? How was that possible? Did he shoot himself and then stumble across the street and then die right there? But yet you're saying it was a clean shot through the heart. How Mm. was that possible? Like, I'm not a medical examiner, but I think I have enough sense to know. And then the gun that you guys found, it wasn't even a a gun. It was a sawed off shotgun. Mm. They found in our yard in a puddle of water, which we lived catty corner from the house where he was found. And in my head, I'm thinking, like, how? How is that possible? You know, and, and if he killed himself, then why were his knees dirty? Why were why was his his knees bruised? Why were his pants like dirty on his on his knees? 
You know, why were his shoes full of mud? My brother, if you met him, I kid you not. How can I say? He was so particular with his clothes. Like his clothes, like I kid you not. When I say starch, I mean, this boy loved his starch. His pants would literally stand up on their own because he ironed and used so much starch. If his pants weren't creased and his shirts weren't white or black and crisp, his shoes were always immaculate. My brother never had dirty shoes. My brother was like the cleanest 16-year-old in the world. And he wasn't always like that up until the age of like 14, 15, and 16. When he started noticing the ladies, that's when he became the way he became. He became Rico Suave with his clothes. Like he did, like he always had a cologne on. He always smelled good. Like he'd brush his teeth like two, three times a day. Like he was very meticulous with the way he looked. And when we got his stuff back and my mom and I opened that bag and we saw the pants, I already knew. I was like, no way. That's not my brother. His pants, his shoes are muddy. My brother never would walk in mud ever. Like he would rather take off his shoes and socks and roll up his pants and walk through the mud than go in the mud with his shoes. We knew like we already knew like they're not going to do anything about it. They're just not. It's one less Mexican off the street. That's what it is. You know, you can't get more of a Mexican name than Jorge Andres Luna. You know what I mean? And again, another huge presence of policemen were at Maria's house. The family there were surrounded by cops and helicopters flying over until one of Maria's brothers, Jorge's uncle, went out there and said, quote, if my nephew committed suicide, what are you guys doing here? End quote. To me, that's a reasonable question. And completely reasonable for Maria to lose her patience with the harassment of police. I just remember thinking, like, how are they going to give a mother a death certificate that says suicide on it without doing a full investigation? And I just remember my mom just like crying and crying and crying and thinking that, you know, she failed him. It was her fault that he did this. And, mm. and my mom knew, my mom always knew deep inside that he never killed himself. He never, she would never do that. Regardless of my brother was facing 20 years in prison, you know, he, he just did not have that character at all. He didn't have that in him. And yeah, you, you just have that feeling. You know your people. You know your people around you. A mother knows their child, mm -hmm. exactly. you know? And yes, I understand that people commit suicide every day, but my brother didn't. Mm -hmm. I know that for a fact. I would put my life on the line. I, I know that for a fact. My brother would never commit suicide, ever. He loved himself too much to ever do that. He loved us so much that he would never do that my brother never a day in his life ever spoke about death ever he never spoke about being sad he never spoke about you know feeling a certain way none of that none of that and let's just say hypothetically he did let's just say hypothetically he did kill himself how do you explain that though mm -hmm. how do you explain the weapon that he killed himself with across the street with 
no fingerprints of his on it. Explain that one. Did the rain wash it away? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Come on, it's 1998. It's not 1960. We have better technology than to say the rain washed it away. I mean, come on. There was literally no mud from our house to that house where it happened mm. because it was our yard that was grass, our driveway, and then caddy corner to the left was that abandoned house. There was no mud there. It was all concrete. So our thoughts and beliefs are that this group of people who supposedly were his friends found him walking back from my cousin Sergio's house and they got into an altercation behind that abandoned house. Mm -hmm. And my brother's hands were like, his knuckles were bloody. So clearly my brother got into some kind of fight with one of them. There was, you know, like mud back there. So did he kill himself back there and then go put the gun over there and then lay down right there? Like, you know what I mean? And the mystery doesn't stop there. Almost 15 years after Jorge's death, a detective reached out to Maria and told her the most jaw-dropping news. Jorge Andres Luna did not die by a self-inflicted gunshot wound. His death is ruled now a homicide. This news was probably what Maria wanted to hear 15 years prior, even though this is still the worst news for a mother to hear about their child. But to have this intuition that Jorge would never do this to himself finally was coming from the people that ruled his death as a suicide. What was the change of heart? Was this the only detective that actually took the time to look at his case? and do more digging and research and find out that the pieces just didn't add up? I know Maria and her family, as well as myself, hope this to be true. That's why I reached out to the Phoenix Police Department in hopes to bring light to this discovery. At this moment, I haven't heard from the disc detective, but would love for them to put their side to the findings. So like I said, our, our thoughts and we told the investigators time and time again, like, it's this group of people. This is who they are. This is their names. And they had beef because of the stuff that my brother was going to jail for. Because my brother didn't want to be a snitch and say anything. And they wanted him to snitch because one of the people that were also involved in that was one of their family members who had supposedly nothing to do with the situation but my brother didn't want to come forward and say, no, it wasn't him. My brother's like, that's none of my business. I'm just doing what I need to do because I was involved in that. So I'm handling my shit like a man and I'm not involving anybody else. So then our thoughts are that they went over there. They saw him. They picked him up. They went to this house. They went in the backyard. They got into a fight and maybe my brother tried to run or something. And that's where they shot him in the front. And then they got scared or I don't know what they did, but one of them is the one that decided to run to our house and tell my brother-in-law, knock on the door or bang on the door and tell him, hey, Carson got shot across the street and then be stupid enough to leave a weapon. And I say a weapon because it wasn't the weapon that my brother was shot with in our yard, whether it fell out of their pocket or jacket or they just threw it there or whatever. It wasn't the weapon that my brother was shot with. So all this is in the investigation. But yet they consider it a suicide. 
That is crazy. And I, I believe even your mother even mentioned, what was it, uh, about uh, 10 years ago that someone actually reached out to her and said that, oh, no, it's not it's not identified as a suicide. It's officially a homicide. Is that correct? Um, from my understanding, yes. Yeah. So how did that, I mean, that blows the top on everything. How did that even happen? So fast forward to like a year or two, not a year actually after my brother passed away, one of his friends, which was um, an older person my age, who, like I said, like these ladies loved him. She had a, a few friends. I can't remember her exact name. She was real close to my brother. She was found dead in her apartment mm. with her with her best friend. And it turned out that the same guy who we believe killed my brother killed her as well. Mm. Because she knew that he had killed my brother because she was dating him at the time. And because she knew this information and she was going to go forward and tell somebody, he decided to kill her. And when he killed her, he found this other girl in the bathroom hiding because she was scared and he decided to kill her too. Hmm. So my understanding from what I remember is that this girl, she has a parent who is either a politician or is involved in the police some way, somehow. I can't remember exactly, um, but I can also get details. I could ask another friend who knows who knew her. And I guess they were investigating everything. So then fast forward to like eight years after that, there was a thing on the news where they were doing like a silent witness thing again, saying, does anybody know anything about this information? And they put up the pictures of and all the stuff. And I guess people started coming forward. Mm. And then that's how it became. So apparently my brother wasn't the only person this, the only person that he killed. He also killed them. And then the people that knew my brother that were involved and knew what was happening they didn't want to talk all of a sudden they're radio silent because now they have families now they have families they don't want to get involved they don't want anything to happen to them but yet they don't want to talk either and that's where it's been at so then you know when this investigation started like I said my brother and those two murders are not the only ones apparently he had done more and they were kind of like connecting the dots and the detective that was on the case just so happened to be from the same small town my mom was from. Interesting. Wow. And so since then, nothing's happened because supposedly at the time, they still didn't have enough evidence to get this guy. Mm. So fast forward to now, which will be 25 years on February 18th that my brother's passed away. We still have nothing. We still have nothing. It's considered a, a cold case. Um, and that's where it's at. We don't know if this person is still alive or dead. We know that one of the guys that was with him that went to the door and knocked on the door or banged on the door and told my brother-in-law, hey, Carson got shot across the street. He's dead now. Mysteriously, he's dead. He huh. got shot as well. So, I mean, come on. All I knew from what Marie had identified is that just recently or 10 years ago from around this time that she got this call of information about the change of the case. Mm -hmm. So I did not know anything about the in-between. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. My head is spinning on like, yeah, that's insane. Oh my God. They have no idea what they did to my mom. They have no idea what they did to my dad. And then with all those things happening after, that only gives you more confirmation that my brother didn't kill himself. Right. You know? More fuel to the fire. Exactly. I'm so sorry that y'all went through this. And still going through this. And still, to this day. Was there anything else that you'd like to share with me that you'd like to let the listeners know what they can do to help? I just know that there's people out there that know what happened. You know, I mean, you don't have to say your name. You don't have to say any of that. Just give the information that you know. Like, they have no idea how much they would be helping. You know, I mean, like I said, it's not going to bring my brother back. It's not. And I don't know what this closure is going to do for us. But I know my brother deserves that. I know he deserves that. He was a good person. He made some wrong choices, but he never hurt anybody in those wrong choices. He knew the stuff that he did. He knew that he he had to like pay for whatever he did. But I don't want anybody thinking that, that he was this bad person that hurt people because he didn't. He didn't hurt people. And, and he was just a kid. He was a baby still. You know, and I know that he deserves justice. And I just, I, I just hope that somebody out there knows what happened. And I know there's people out there that know what happened. They can just tell somebody, they can tell you, they can anonymously call. Nobody has to know anything. I do want justice for my brother. And more so, I want it from my mom. My mom deserves to know that whoever did this to her baby. I actually do have a link on my link tree that provides anonymous emails. Like if they have an anonymous tip and they want to be, you know, Joe Schmo anonymously, they can send that information to me and say, I want to remain anonymous. I just, the whole point is that I want the same thing that any other family has gone through. They just want at least one step closer to closure, one step closer, at least some type of next step of grieving process or to to find peace because this family doesn't deserve this. Jorge doesn't deserve this. He didn't. He didn't. People that know, that have information and now have families and don't want to talk, just think about it. What if it was your child? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you want somebody to talk? Wouldn't you want somebody to help out, to give you that peace, to give you that closure? Nobody deserves that. Nobody deserves to die like that. Nobody deserves not to get justice. And and that's all I ask is that think about if it was your child. Think about if it was your brother, your father, you know, he was somebody's son. He was somebody's brother somebody's uncle cousin exactly thank you so much tina Uh, it's been a pleasure i love you for doing this like you're amazing thank you definitely a blessing thank you i appreciate that and for the time being 
If you have any information on the murder of Jorge Andres Luna, please do contact the Phoenix Police Department. You may contact Silent Witness at 480-WITNESS or 480-948-6377. I will have all this information in the show notes. We are voiceless no more. Thank you for listening to Hands Off My Podcast. If you are enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support the mission, I do have a Patreon membership that will help the cause and bring more detail on cases and stories from the people of color community. If you yourself has a lost loved one or a story suggestion, please don't hesitate to contact me at email. Handsoffmypodcast at gmail.com And if you are only able to support in another way, please give this podcast a 5-star rating on Apple or Spotify and continue to listen to upcoming episodes every Thursday wherever you listen to your podcast. Dios te bendiga.